Greetings from Covenant Community of LJ, Georgia. We want to thank you for taking the time to listen to these messages God has provided to our fellowship from His Word. May He bless you richly as you seek Him. We'd like to invite you to be with us in person someday soon. And for information on that, visit us at covenantcommunitylj.com. And now, let's open up God's Word. Get to worship with the body of Christ. We serve a risen King, Jesus. He is our hope of glory. He is our Savior. There's nothing, nothing else we can offer. If you come in here thinking that maybe after you get to know us, we'll offer something else, this is it. Just want you to know all we have is Jesus. He's our only hope. He is the source of everything good. And all we want to do here is make a big deal out of Jesus. We want you to see what a big deal he is to us because he's changed our lives, right? So when we worship, man, he is, he is perfect in all of his ways. And even though he gives and he takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, our Savior, our King who rules. He's a good Father. We can trust him. And we sing those songs to, as you were saying, John, aligning our hearts, or, or no, that was Joey, uh, aligning our hearts to the truth. And aligning our hearts to what God is. We always adjust our life to truth, what God says. We don't ask him to adjust to us. And so anyway, I'm, I'm just pumped. I love coming to a place that genuinely worships God. Thank you for that. It is so what my heart needs. So thank you that we can come and, and do that together. We are about to begin a series on the book of Colossians. And I could not be more excited. We're calling this the Hope of Glory and Steve and I have been excited. I know even our student leaders have been studying through this, and they're excited. Uh, the book of Colossians has to be at the top. If I were to start listing out my favorite books, books that have impacted my life more than any other, Colossians is going to make a case for being right up there at the top of the list. It has impacted my guts in a way that I can't explain, but that's not going to stop me from trying. So we're going to... We're going to jump into this series, and Steve and I are studying together, and you'll be able to hear from uh, both of us as we work through this book. And so I, I'm really hoping that as we share what God is teaching us, and as you're meditating on what God gives you, that this series will help us take another step forward, another step toward what it is to really know and love and follow Jesus Christ, our Savior. He is the theme of this book. He really is, and we'll unpack that a little bit more. But in case you've not been into the book of Colossians. This week, my hope is really, parts of it are going to feel like a history lesson, and that's going to be okay. Uh, parts of it, we're going to get into some, some, oh, am I off still? I think, I think I'm on, it says I'm on. Should I try and reseat it here? I heard something click. Is it working now? Can you hear me? Okay. All right, so uh, I may just have to shout hard. It's on here, so whatever you guys could do there. Can you all hear me Okay. Yes. All right, I'll just project. Uh, but anyway, we're, we're bringing this uh, series on Colossians. I might be able to bring, y'all let me know. I can pull one of these mics over here if I have to. Uh, but anyway, it is, it's an awesome letter. I'm excited. If you haven't studied Colossians before and don't know that much about it, then we want to help you figure that out. I'm excited to help unpack it. So like I said, some of it will feel like a history lesson. But that's because I feel like once you get to know Paul, once you get to know Colossae, you need to know the author, you need to know the recipient, if you have any hope of really getting the, the truth of what this is really trying to mean. So it is a letter with a purpose, and I want you to understand it. Uh, Paul is, is writing to a church that he's never been to. Uh, we don't know if he ever went there. We don't think he did. Uh, he's never gone to this place. 
And he didn't particularly plant it directly, but he's been a part of how that went down. And so uh, I'm praying that as we dig into the background of this, that this will, uh, will come to life for you. Because here's, here's why I want to know uh, these people in Colossae and, and understand this city. is because even though we're separated by time, even though we're separated geograph- geographically, even though we're separated by technology and all sorts of things that are different in our societies, there's still people. And they still were born with the same fears, same struggles, same difficulties that we're born with. And so their problem, I told you this is a letter with a purpose, the problem that they were struggling with, the, the thing that Paul is writing to help them with is a problem that we still deal with. And it is, it's so much what our heart needs. This, this letter is absolutely relevant to today. It's like it was written yesterday almost. The answer that Paul gives to their question is exactly what we need to hear. So... I just, I pray that this really helps. The answer is simply this, that Jesus is our hope of glory. He is enough. We don't need anything else. It's not Jesus and anything. It's just Jesus. And when you start to see this in Colossians, you start seeing Christianity through the book of Colossians. I'm praying that if, if you're so far, your walk with, with God, your experience of Christianity has been uh, Christ and you, that we can shift that and we can make it different than what that is. And we'll explain that in a little bit. So let's let's get to know the players here. First off, no, we need to get to know Paul. So some of you guys know Paul really well. Bear with me because I know there's probably some of you who didn't uh, get a million hours of Sunday school and all that. By the way, you can come and enjoy that at 10 8 or 9.45 a.m. Uh, every week here and join a small group where we get into a lot of these studies. But in case you haven't, um, Paul was a guy, his name was originally Saul, and Saul was a really amazing character. He was both a Jew and a Roman citizen, and Paul's alive during the time of Jesus, possibly born right around the same time as Jesus, one of his contemporaries, and Paul was a Pharisee, and he was the son of a Pharisee, if you don't know what that means, he was the part of the religious elite of the Jewish system, okay, and so these were incredibly careful to adhere to all the law that God had given them. And so he was very, very, very educated, even studied under a guy named Gamaliel, which is absolutely the most brilliant uh, and most influential Pharisee that we know of at at that time. So he is incredibly educated. He's both a Roman citizen and he's a Jew. And so obviously when this guy claims to be God, Jesus Christ, who's walking around, claims to be God, Paul stands against that because of his education, right? And he begins to persecute these people that were followers of Jesus. And at that point, they weren't called Christians yet. It was just called the way. And it got really crazy when Jesus rose from the dead. We talked about this. And all his followers saw him alive. You couldn't shut him up. Uh, There was no way they would be quiet. They started going out and, and, and talking about Jesus everywhere they went. Well, we find Saul... This is his name before God changes it. We find Saul persecuting Christians. In fact, he is holding the coats of those who stoned uh, Stephen, who was preaching the gospel. He was one of those people that you couldn't shut up, who had had understood that Jesus was alive, and he was proclaiming the gospel loud and clear. And so Saul is right there uh, pleased that they are stoning and killing him. And, of course, Stephen did die. Well, we find Saul uh, going to persecute more Christians on his way to a town called Damascus. And he's got all the papers that he needs to, uh, with the support to be able to put Christians, these people, these followers of the way into jail to try and snuff out this movement. But while he's on the way out there, uh, God shows himself to Paul and blinds him and speaks loudly to him. And Paul hears loud and clear. Not everybody in that, uh, his little group heard loud and clear, but Paul did. And over a series of some events, Paul became a believer himself. So as he stood opposed to the way, now he'd experienced Jesus, and he realized that Jesus actually was the Messiah, 
that he had been looking for. And so he repents of his former way of thinking and begins to, hey, there we go. Now I suddenly I'm loud. Uh, but he, he turns away from his background as a, a Jewish Pharisee. And instead of saying, you know, we need to keep going with that, he understands that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and becomes parts of the way, part of the way and begins sharing the gospel everywhere, not just with Jews, but with people who weren't Jews. We call those Gentiles. He, he talks to everybody and he's sharing the gospel everywhere. And so after that experience, this very educated Roman citizen, this very uh, dedicated and devout, educated Jew who's got a perfect understanding of all the players in this whole thing. God's just perfectly equipped him in his background. If you ever don't think God is sovereign, just, just read the Bible. You'll see he's, he's incredible. And, and you start watching how God prepared Saul for this, changes his name to Paul. And eventually, uh, it took Barnabas, it took a friend, it took some others trying to coax the, the believers, the followers of the way to trust this Saul, who was responsible for potentially even some of their loved ones, friends, uh, deaths. For them to trust him was a tremendous offering of grace, but Barnabas fought for him. And eventually, Paul uh, finds these partners like Barnabas and, and, and Timothy, and he goes out and he begins all these missionary journeys. We know of at least three, uh, maybe four, uh, maybe more that we don't know about, but Paul became the greatest missionary the world has ever known. And, and he went out and spread the gospel everywhere. He would go into a town and he would go to the synagogue where the Jews educated their kids and they read the Torah and they, they worshiped. He would go right into the guts of Judaism and he would proclaim Jesus. And inevitably they would reject him and be like, that's not true. And they would want to kill him. And Paul would go out and begin proclaiming it to the Gentiles. Well, they didn't always go so well. Uh, sometimes people got really angry. Sometimes it went okay at first. And then the Jews were like, Paul is here. Send back up. Literally, read, read Acts. You'll see this. And they would like this mass would come out and they would try and deal with Paul and they would either chase him away. One time they stone him, leave him for dead outside the city and Paul just relentlessly wanted to share the gospel kind of dusts himself off, walks right back into the town and the believers of the way there they're like, Paul you gotta get out of here, you, do, you know too much, like you gotta get out of here. So they lower him over the wall, you know in a basket, they get him out of the city, and he goes on continuing to do things. Well, Paul's life is a tremendous adventure. The back half of Acts, you can read all about it if you want to know this, but uh, Paul spent some time in this town called Ephesus, and it's in the region of Phrygia, and in, over there where Phrygia, and while he's there, uh, he is sharing the gospel and spent you know, two to three years there with some people, probably making tents and sharing the gospel and, and pouring into people, and it became a hub for the gospel. And in this region of Asia Minor, people would literally come to Paul to, to be trained and to be taught and to understand the way better. Who is Jesus and how do we take this back to our communities? And uh, that's, that's what happened. So one of these people from this town of Colossae, which is about 100 miles away, maybe 120 miles away from Ephesus. We don't know exactly where it is. The archaeologists haven't excavated it yet because Turkey's not all that excited about it. Uh, but <laughs> the bottom line is that um, it's about 120, maybe like from here to a little bit past Athens. So Athens, Georgia, it's not that far. Like, so not that far away is, is where Colossae was in relationship uh, to Ephesus. And so Paul is teaching there in Ephesus. Well, this guy named Epaphras uh, went to learn from Paul the gospel. And when he goes, he is powerfully impacted by the truth. He becomes a follower of the way and he goes and takes that back to his little tri-city area and he begins to share the gospel in Colossae in the two sounds, uh, two, two cities that were right next to it, uh, Laodicea and Hierapagus and, and Hierapolis. Yeah. And he's, he's sharing the gospel with him. So the gospel begins to take root right here in, in this place. And so Epaphras was the one who planted a church there. Paul never actually 
went. And so this is all happening. Colossae was a cool town, all right? It wasn't a huge town. It was actually kind of small. Uh, it, it was an old city. It had been around for about 500 years. If you go back and you look uh, and, and see the historians find a mark that it existed during the reign of Xerxes. Uh, it was the king of Persia around 486 BC to 465 BC. And basically at the very same time that Esther uh, was, if you go back and look at biblical uh, parallels, Esther was alive. This is when her stories were being told. Colossae was already in existence. And so uh, it's an old city. And so if, if you weren't sure when this is actually set, this is set after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, about 62 AD. Okay, this was, uh, the things have been moving along pretty well now. It's been several years since Jesus rose. The gospel is taking root and growing out among the world. It's beginning to spread. And this was written about the same time Paul would have written Philemon in Ephesians. And so uh, Paul, at the time he's writing this, is imprisoned in Rome. Like I said, sometimes uh, when he would go to these towns and share the gospel, it would go really well, and sometimes it went really, really not so well, and they would want to chase him out. Eventually, they tried to kill him, and the, Ro- the Romans eventually just sort of said, this guy is causing too much trouble, and he gets put in jail. And so now he is in jail in Rome under Nero, uh, who was the emperor at the time. And so he is sort of in house arrest at this point, able to have visitors. So uh, Paul is later in life. In fact, we, we think that shortly after he wrote this and, and some other books to Timothy, Timothy was with him at this time. He would have passed away within you know three to five years after this, Paul would have died. So we're, we're seeing this uh, kind of the end of, of Paul's life, end of his ministry. You can tell his understanding of Christ is really well developed and he's, he's sharing this truth with them uh, to Epaphras. Now, Here's, here's how it begins. Are with me in Colossians chapter 1? Let's read this. It says, just like a, a normal letter would begin, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and all the love that you've, you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you've heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. And so when we see this, what, what I hope you'll get is that Epaphras would have come not to Ephesus to meet with Paul. He would have taken a 1,300 mile journey to meet Paul in Rome while he's in prison there. That is a long way to go to deliver a message. And we understand that Epaphras using the, the awesome Roman road system, would have made his way to Rome and began to meet with Paul. And he went with the reason because something was going on in Colossae. Something needed to be addressed. There was an issue going on, and Epaphras felt it so important that he knew he needed to get word directly from Paul, who was in charge of about seven churches there in Asia Minor. He was their leader, and they needed an authoritative answer to a struggle that was going on, and they really needed to understand that. So if you can imagine when Epaphras finally gets there to meet with Paul, and he begins to unload, he's had all these miles to think about what he's going to say, he begins to unload on Paul and probably Timothy, who was there. This is what's happening in Colossae. Paul had never been there himself, but he's hearing about these people, 
And the message would have essentially been, these people are amazing, they're growing, the gospel's taking root in them, but there is a dangerous, very difficult issue that is facing us, and we need you to speak to it. I'm going to tell you what it is in just a second. So he goes, and he's talking about this town of Colossae, which was small. It was made of mostly Gentiles, and they were under the Roman Empire. And there may have been as many as 50,000 Jews, we understand from looking at tax records, maybe as many as 50,000 Jews in that tri-city area, uh, those three cities I was telling you about, and certainly a bunch of those would have been in Colossae, but in, in large part, it was a Gentile city. And so it was also a Roman rule. Now, to really get this, you need to understand what's happening in Rome as well, okay? Now, Rome, I don't have to tell most of you that it was a massive empire that impacted the world in ways that, that we're still figuring out, uh, but understanding Roman rule and the significance of that and what's happening there will help you understand Colossae and even why this letter was written and help you identify with why they needed to hear it. So at the time when Paul wrote this, he's prisoner in Rome. Rome is massive. At its pinnacle, Rome reaches from England to India. I mean, it is ginormous. This thing is a huge empire, bigger than anything we've seen or, or will see in our lifetime it is massive. It wasn't just a blip on the radar. It, it led the world for 1,500 years. I mean, as America, we're just kind of, we're new kids on the block at this point. Uh, it, that is a long time to run the world. 1,500 years spanning pretty much the known world. Uh, it's just unbelievable the influence that they had. And there were three things that really stood out about Rome. Three sort of Romanas, these kind of Latin, we refer back to these. There was the peace of Rome, Pax Romana. And, and this, this peace, it has its own name because it was unprecedented. Uh, the world had been stirred up and it was constantly at war. I mean, there's a war right after another. Everybody's fighting, trying to gain power. You know, somebody would need something, so they go take it from someone else. It just was constant. But under Roman rule, uh, there was this peace that came. They call it the, the peace of Rome. It's, it's unbelievable for, for like B.C. 31 to about A.D. 250. Some people argue about kind of when the numbers ended. It, there was peace inside the Roman Empire. Now, on the edges of the Roman Empire, not so much. If you were a soldier, you didn't experience peace because you were constantly fighting deeper and deeper into the barbarians' territory. But inside that empire, there was tremendous peace for those who were experiencing that. And that's an amazing thing because that allowed for growth. It allowed for travel. It allowed for people to think about different things. It allowed for trade to become a, a, a bigger reality. And this went on for you know a long, long time. So the, the peace of Rome set the stage for a lot of what's happening here. And Colossae is experiencing that. And then we have the Via Romana, the, the roads of Rome. So we understand... Roads were not something that always were. You may not realize that, but the first road we understand in history was written in, it was made in 312 BC. But by the second century, there were 50,000 miles worth of roads in the Roman Empire. 50,000 miles worth of roads. That's crazy, right? And and the cool thing is, if you've ever been to uh, anywhere in Europe, uh, you probably can see like on a travel guide, they're like, if you want to go walk on the ancient Roman roads, you can find one. They're not far from you. You can go and find them. And they're still being used today. Go Google it. You can see pictures of these things all over the place, these little stone things. And they made them really well, but they existed for a long time. Now, here's why we bring up the roads in the middle of a Bible study about Colossae. Why are we talking about roads? Well, the roads connected the world and it, and it caused travel to be a possibility. People could go greater distances with, I guess, relative safety compared to what uh, they had had before. And so trade was flourishing. And when trade is flourishing, you're not just trading goods. Eventually you start trading ideas. 
And when you start trading ideas and philosophies and, and thinking, uh, and you're all under the same sort of Roman rule, we'll get to the, the third one, which is law here in a second. Man, even religion starts coming out on the table. And all of a sudden, this, this mixing, this sort of, it was, everything was being churned up. All these different kind of beliefs were being churned up. Colossae is right in the middle of that discussion. Ephesus was a port town. Sailors would come in. Stuff would come in. And just, you know, right down the way, 120 miles away, all these ideas are landing in the port, you know, day after day after day. Trade is happening, and they're trading ideas. And this is right there next to them. And so the third thing, so we got the, the peace of Rome, the, the roads of Rome, and then you got the laws of Rome. Now, the reason why we're bringing this up is because these laws created a lot of this peace. The laws created this understanding of justice. The laws created an opportunity for people to really flourish. They were flexible, and so they allowed people to deal with things justly, that they were firm enough to hold the rule of law. You know, I think it's really cool how it impacted us today. Some of the things that, that we, the key principles that translate into us in modern countries today, there's citizenship all of a sudden, you know, citizens have rights, and that was one of the reasons why Paul wasn't killed already. He claims, like, I'm a Roman citizen, and because he was a Roman citizen, you can't torture Roman citizens, and all of them have the right to a trial. This starting to sound familiar, right? Like, so much of what the Romans invented about law sort of held that world together. And so we get these three things, and, and why, why am I mentioning that? Well, this created this stability, and, and the impact of these created this, again, this mixing of ideas. And when we call this syncretism, where there's several different you know, religions, or, or at least two, who are beginning to meld together and blend together, where they're beginning to trade things back and forth, where there becomes sort of this combination, a combo religion. And you get this syncretism where it's like, okay, I'm going to take, it's like a buffet line, right? I like this about your God, but I think I want some of this too. And I want doubles of this. You know, oh, I'm going to put this back because this is better. And there's this sense of like, I'm going to take what I want from that. And, and these people, in large part, were, were pagans. And this syncretism that's sort of beginning to happen in Colossae uh, was powerful. And honestly, the Romans didn't really mind what religion you worshipped as long as you didn't have an uprising. Uh, they really wanted your main religion to be loyalty to the Roman government. In fact, one of the reasons why Nero persecuted Christians was they were accused of hating uh, the, the rest of humanity, basically. Hating Rome, certainly, because they wouldn't fight. And really, they just wanted them to take up a sword and go fight the barbarians. And Christians were like, we're not going to do that. Uh, we're about peace. And so that's, that's one of the reasons why they were persecuted. They were certainly misunderstood, as we are today. Uh, that's Anyway, we'll move on. But this syncretism that's happening was important. Now... All right, now we're getting back to, to why I'm telling you all this. So Colossae was this pagan city, and the gospel landed there. And, and they worshiped these pagan gods, or many of them. I'll tell you about them in a second. And they would worship these gods, and all of a sudden they encountered the gospel, which began to change their life. But because of this syncretism, this fusing of lots of ideas, they have this, this pagan way of life that they've grown up in, along with some Jewish people that are living in their town. And then all of a sudden... These Christians are dropping in there and like, hey, we have this gospel and it's just Jesus. And they're like, Jesus and, and, and then what? <laughs> like, Jesus and, okay, cool. All right, tell us more about that. And, uh, what else? Like, that's cool. We need to know the next part. Uh, and, and, and they were thinking about this way because here's paganism. The historians tell us about what's happening in Asia Minor right here. And in this region, we understand that they worship these, these like, there's like nine of these gods. Sybil was one of them who was considered like the mother of gods and men, who was all about male fertility. There was uh, Isus, which was about magic. 
Uh, Serapis was the god of abundance, which is really interesting because you find out a pharaoh introduced this god in order to create unity. You talk about syncretism between the Egyptians and the Greeks. They put this god in there, sort of representing them both. Helios, who was the sun, sun god. Selene was the moon god. Demeter was the god of the harvest. Artemis was the god of the hunt. He would dominate the worship of the people. They, they loved to worship him. You know, and this was the, the lifestyle that they had grown up in. Now, each of us has a past. Some of us were grown, growing up in a culture very much like what we're experiencing here. But can you imagine these people, the pull of their former lives? Like, they'd experienced paganism all of this time. They'd worshipped all of these gods. And you understand how paganism worked. And, and it was a sensual sort of worship. And some of the rites and the methods of pagan worship were were sensual, and they appealed to people's lusts, and they believed that they had this fear that drove it. They believed that earthquakes and floods and all these acts of God uh, occurred because they didn't appease all of the pagan gods well enough, that they didn't please them, offer them enough stuff, do enough stuff for them, honor them well enough, uh, have enough idols everywhere. They felt like when anything happened that they couldn't explain or couldn't control, it was the gods that were turning on them, and they needed to ramp up their worship of these gods. They believed their fates were controlled by these gods and worship them in order to seek uh, favor that would potentially improve their circumstances through life. They're like, this is a way for us to gain control of the uncontrollable. And they knew that there was something out there. And so they're worshiping these pagan gods. And it was a way of making themselves feel safe in a world filled with pain and trouble. I mean, you can imagine uh, what was going on even now, but back then, even more so. You think about how it might affect a pagan who had become a Christian when they were told to stop worshiping all of these gods that they live in fear of for all these years, and they've been going around almost these pagan temples like spinning plates. You ever seen those guys? And they're like, gotta keep this God happy. All right, gotta keep this God happy. Keep this God happy. Oh yeah, I forgot this one. Back over here. God of the hunt, God of the harvest, God of the sun. You know, and they're spinning all these plates trying to keep them happy so everything goes well for them, goes well for their kids, goes well for their family, and that nothing sort of blindsides them that they could have avoided. Can you imagine what it would have been like for somebody coming and said, it's just Jesus. Stop all that. Really? <laughs> like, are you sure? Because my whole life, my whole thinking has been, if I stop doing this, like bad things are going to happen to me. And suddenly, they, they do. They really get the gospel. And you can tell they really did get this. Like this landed in their hearts. And they're like, we are all in. Like they, they did this. And they stopped worshiping their gods. They really got the gospel here. And they began to follow Jesus and it was coming into uh, their life in, a, in an increasing way. They were beginning to understand it, but they were worshiping him. And they discovered that there was only one God and that his name was Jesus. And they heard that he rose from the dead, that he offered forgiveness and salvation for those who put their faith in him. And they were all in on this. It was exciting. And I, you know, at first it was awesome, but as it began to spread out, as it began to to, to linger on, they began to experience, what we understand is that this pagan past began to creep back up. And there's this relapse that began to be an issue. This relapse into paganism, where you're turning back to trying to appease all these gods. This is what Epaphras Wynn tells Paul. He's like, they got it. They believe. They're on board. And they believe it. They're like, Jesus is our number one God. We're all about Jesus. We love him. We get it. He's God. But I just feel like I need to go back and kind of spin that plate a little bit because it's getting a little scary over here in this area. Like, crops are not growing so well. They got out of the harvest. Maybe, 
Maybe there was something to that. Maybe Jesus won't mind. Jesus is my main God, but I'm going to go over here and, you know, it's not going so well with the harvest right now. So I'm going to go spin this plate in front of this God. I'm going to go offer him sort of some sacrifice. And they were beginning to want to, to, to blend these things together. You see how this is working? It's like, Jesus is my number one, but I got this backup plan in case he doesn't come through. And, and we know that this was part of the issue. Like, well, how are you making all these judgments? Well, we understand that in this region... Was, and I, please, I'm not trying to, to necessarily try and say this is what happened with the Catholics, but there, was a, uh, there were some cults that came right out of this. Paul deals with angel worship here, but St. Michael, which is really the archangel Michael, began to be worshipped in this region, in Phrygia. And so you get to see that this is where <laughs> that began to be a thing. They built like temples to him and they began to worship angels uh, some just venerated him as a, a great angel and were grateful for God's protection, but others took it a step further and turned it into a cult. They also took the, this Sybil, the, the, the goddess of, or the mother of the gods, and because they were used to goddess worship, you find several hundred years later, there was this whole deal where they began to attribute in this cult, I'm not trying to accuse the Catholics of doing this, but there was this cult that began to, to treat Mary as mother of the gods. And they put, they sort of put a layer of paganism on top of Christianity and began to worship Mary like she was a, a new version of Sybil. Are you see, see what I'm trying to say? And there was this, this is happening hundreds of years later, plus there was this whole sense of Gnosticism. Gnosticism, we don't really see the true things. Uh, it's like pre-Gnosticism. That doesn't really come till just a bit later. But there was this whole idea uh, that there was some sort of secret mystical knowledge that needed to be obtained and that Jesus was one of uh, different emanations of deities and, and angels and spiritual forces that would reveal themselves, that would give you secret spiritual knowledge, secret spiritual experiences, so that you could understand something beyond what you've been told so that you could really experience even more of God. It's like, you've got Jesus, but Gnosticism said, but you need this secret knowledge and you need these extra experiences. And these people were like, okay, well, you need Jesus plus you need the harvest God. You need Jesus plus these other things. Are y'all following me on this? And there was this syncretism that was beginning to happen in there. Now, Epaphras presents this incredible danger to them, and he goes in, and, and he begins to explain this desperate need, this desperate need for them to, to hear from, from this truth. They needed to hear from Paul and understand the reality of, of what was going on. And the message is simply this, that it is just Jesus. You don't need anything but Jesus. And so when we get to this, um, excuse me for one moment, my battery died up here, so I've got my backup going here. So, so Jesus is pointed back and we're trying to say we need Jesus more than anything else. So Paul writes back to this message and he wants them to know that, listen, your hope has to be in Jesus, not in anything else. And, and here's kind of where I'm going with this. Doesn't this all start to sound a little bit familiar to life as we might experience it for a while? I know that for each of us, as we're operating in our lives, many of us have come to know Jesus, but that those former habits, those former ways of thinking, sometimes it's hard for us to come to a place where we genuinely only believe that Jesus is the only answer. We kind of want to think of this as Jesus is my number one, but just in case that doesn't work out, I've got this backup plan here. You know, and, and I feel like the humanists make some good points. I think that God is a bit too strict, and maybe I'm not sure I can really trust him. I mean, I want Jesus. I really do. 
but I feel like I can get more control if I, if I maybe bend some moral lines, if I got to tweak a few things, if I swap out a few things here, maybe, maybe it's not just Jesus, maybe I need to add a little bit to that to make a better version of this. I'll bend some of the rules because, you know what, ultimately I feel like I just really need to be happy and I'm afraid that Jesus, if I follow him strictly, I won't get happiness and he'll, he'll, he'll betray me somehow, maybe I won't get everything that I need. If I want to experience all of that, I need Jesus and something. And, and here's where I'm getting at. How insane is it that we are willing to disobey God in order to get something we need that we don't think God is providing? We believe that God is so powerful, and he's so good, and he's amazing, but we're like, you know what? I'm afraid that I'm going to miss out on something God doesn't want to give me, and I'm afraid he won't do it in the right timing. I'm afraid he won't provide it when I need it, and so you know what? I'm willing to even disobey the God that I think I'm here to worship. I'm willing to disobey him in order to have that now, and I, and I know that we don't experience paganism. Let me unpack this. We don't experience paganism the way that they did. We don't have temples in Gilmer County where we can go to and worship nine different pagan gods. But I I just want to ask you this. Where really is your hope? Colossians is going to deal with this. Where is your hope? What is your hope of glory? What is it that you believe is going to genuinely satisfy your guts, make you happy, give you fulfillment? What is it that you really believe? Not what you say you believe, but what you really believe is going to provide everything that you're looking for and give you fulfillment and joy and happiness. You know, I I think here's what it boils down to. If your hope is in the now, if your hope is in this life alone, then you're going to live terrified of missing out on anything. And you'll quickly do anything to make sure you get to taste every millisecond of pleasure this world has to offer. And I think so much so that we'll even disobey God and hurt the people that we love most in order to get it. That's, That's where so many of us are at. If your hope is in this world... You're going to be like that. If your hope is in this life, you're going to be restless. You're going to experience anger. You're going to, you're going to be disappointed at every turn because you, you're never going to be able to find a way to have it all now. You're never going to be able to find a way to have everything you're looking for right now. You'll spend your whole life chasing something you can't quite put your finger on. And, and, and honestly, you'll bow down to the idol of abundance, one of those gods we just talked about, thinking that money is going to solve your problems. And so I I know that money will fix it. My hope is in money. So God, I'm willing to disobey you and it's Jesus and I'm going to do money my way because if I do it my way, then I can experience the happiness that I'm looking for. You'll bow down to the idol of lust because you think it's sensual pleasure will make you truly happy. You bow down to the leisure of romance because you believe that that kind of intimacy will take away the loneliness and finally give you the joy. So I'm willing to disobey God's order in this area in order to meet my needs in this one. You'll worship, bow down to the God of the hunt, thinking that personal achievement is going to satisfy what you're looking for. Maybe bow down to the God of magic, thinking power, and uh, it will give you power and control and the security that you're looking for. Now, honestly, you'll run from one altar to the next, investing part of yourself, even willing to disobey God, but in none of those places will you find the peace, the shalom, the, the, the comfort that God has for you, that satisfaction that God desires for you. He wants to give you purpose. He wants to give you joy. Epaphras saw this pull in their hearts and he goes to Paul and he's like, will you tell them the answer? And Jesus' answer is simple. And we're gonna get into that through the rest of this series. We're only gonna be able to touch on it today. But it's simply this, Jesus is enough. 
Jesus is better than all of them. Jesus is all and he is in all. He's this big word. He is preeminent. He is first. He is last. He is everything. He is sovereign. Everything's created by God and for him. Here's what he, he writes to them in Colossians 1 verse 11. Now, we're only going to read this. We're going to unpack this later. But just listen. This is his answer. Knowing they're struggling, he says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance, with patience, and joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of the light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of, this, of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. He's saying he is stronger than those other gods you've been worshiping. He can deliver you from the darkness. You don't need their protection. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or rulers or dominions or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Listen, how big this is. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that everything, in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, this is huge, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And he's saying all the godness of God is in Christ, it is dwelling in him. It says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in your mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, this is it. If you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. This is awesome. That you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Listen, guys, Colossians unpacks this. We're going to dig in each week a little bit deeper. But Colossians, the, the whole message of this is simply that Jesus is all you need. He is enough. You can scrap your backup plan. You can scrap those other things you feel like you need to add to your life in order to find joy. That you can literally trust him with every facet of your life, doing things his way, yielding to him, and honoring him in every part of who you are. Because you can trust his outcomes to supply what you need. You don't need Jesus and anything. It says in this passage, Jesus is the deliverer. He's the redeemer, forgiver, creator, ruler, sustainer, leader, reconciler. All of God, his godness was dwelling in Christ. Not some of it, but all of it was in Christ. And that's going to be more meaningful later. And here's the message. Paul gives him this warning. This is simple. Do not shift your hope from the gospel. Keep it squarely on the work that Christ has done for you. You don't need Sybil. You don't need men. You don't need Jesus. You don't need any of these other gods. Reject them. Get them out of your life. You don't need a backup plan. What you need is Jesus, not Jesus and anything. The Jews had to let go of the old covenant. The pagans had to let go of their pagan gods. Citizens of Rome were letting go of their hope of civilization, just a perfect civilization. Everyone put their hope in things. This mystic, sort of the pre-Gnostics, put their hope in some special knowledge or supernatural experience. You know, it wasn't Jesus and Helios. It wasn't Jesus and the old covenant. It wasn't Jesus and Rome. It wasn't Jesus and Gnosticism. It's not even, and this is what I want you to get, it's not even Jesus and you. 
It's not you trying to manage your behavior. Jesus plus my, my best efforts. It's, this is the message of Colossians. It's, it's not Jesus and you. It's Jesus in you. This is what we're going to get into next week. This mystery that's been kept hidden for ages and generations, that is now disclosed among the saints, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Your hope for finance, for romance, for, for lust, for any sensual pleasure, for all these things, for influence, significance, all the things in your life uh, that if you're older, you look back at and be like, if I'd just made this decision, if I'd done this a little differently, then I could have been, all the things that I dreamed about would have come true. And if you're young, you're thinking, if I just do this and this and this and this, then all these things, I know I'll be able to change everything and fix everything. My life will be perfect. I'll have what I want, but I can't do it with just Jesus. I need to add something, Jesus and something. And that temptation, that temptation to grab control is exactly what Colossae was dealing with the church over here. And so my question is to you this week is simply this. What is your hope in? Most of you guys are Christians and you would quickly tell me Jesus. But if I say Jesus and what? And, and here's, here's how you test this. Look at your life and see all the places you're willing to disobey God to get something that you know he doesn't desire for you at that, moment, at that point and at that time. And if you look at that, you'll be able to see the places where you're saying Jesus and I need a little extra here. I need to bend the rules here. And what we've got to do as Christians and what sets us free, what gives us joy, what gives us peace, what gives us this tremendous gift of, of everything, this abundant life that God desires for us is found in submitting to what God wants for us and just yielding to him and saying, it's not going to be Jesus and anything. I don't have to control. I don't have to manipulate. I don't have to disobey. I don't have to do anything else. All I have to do is yield to you and trust that it's not even me and you. It's you in me and you're going to make it happen. And so I just want to yield to you. And so my main job is to just keep you on the throne. So uh, my whole day, I'm just going to spend trying to lift you up, elevate you, and put you where you belong in my life so that none of these other things, none of the ands find their way to the throne. It's just Jesus. And living with that kind of hope gives us peace. And so it gives us joy. It's what you're looking for. It's not in all that other stuff. And this is exactly what they were dealing with in Colossae. So how do we apply this? And, and team, if you want to come up, we're just going to briefly sing a song that really just, I think it's what we're going to want to sing at this point. What do you do? What do you do with this? Repent. We each need to repent of worship that we've offered other idols. But don't just stay there, staring at your failure, thinking, man, I blew it. Quickly move past that and begin to put your hope in Jesus. And whatever you got to leave behind, you're not going to relapse into it when your eyes are on Jesus. Stare at him. Listen to how Paul describes Jesus in Colossians 1. Put your hope in him. Worship him. Fall in love with him. Find joy and peace in him. Dig into his word. Let him reveal to you who he is. And day by day, your spirit's going to be renewed. And you're going to find increasing joy in your relationship with him. Go to the cross. See the conquering Jesus that has defeated the enemy, defeated the darkness. Any other power, ruler, and authority, he has exerted dominion over. You don't need Jesus and anything. You don't even need Jesus and you. You just need Jesus. And when you come up here, don't, don't come up making a zillion promises about how you're going to do this. And that just put him on the throne and worship and bring him glory. He is Messiah. He is the one and only. He is all that we have to offer the world. He is our only hope for the life we've always dreamed of. 
of. He's our only hope for eternity. He's our only hope to be reconciled with God. He's our only source of truth. He is God. He is king of kings. All the fullness of God dwelled in him. And then we're going to unpack this next week. And all that fullness that's in Christ is now in us through the Holy Spirit. It's, it's ridiculous. And it's life-changing when you begin to see it's not God and you. It's Christ in you. And we're going to begin to unpack that in Colossians. Don't miss a single week. If you would just stand to your, finger, your, your feet and let's, let's worship. Jesus, we love you. You are God. We don't want anything in addition to you. We just want you. We're not here to make a million promises. We're just here to say, it's you. We're not going to try and figure out how we can add on to what you are with something we're going to do or say. What we really want is you in us. And we know that happens when we just yield by faith and say, God, I don't want to be in control. I want you to take over. God, I'm not going to try and manipulate. I'm not going to try to control and let go of some stuff. Some things didn't work out as planned. There's some things I'm afraid won't work out if I don't jump in. But God, I'm just going to trust you. I'm going to do it your way. Instead of trying to make it all happen, I'm going to just work as hard as I can to the energy that you use in me. Because it's you in me, not me and you. God, I pray that you would be our only hope. Our only hope. Because that's what's true. You really are. So God, I pray if there's anybody here today who doesn't know you, Maybe they've done religion for a while. Maybe they've had you as their backup plan. Maybe they're, they're cool with Christianity on the surface, but today they get it that Christianity is not about mastering a set of rules. It's not about trying to be a better person. It's about being indwelled by a God who can transform us from the inside out. It's a God who desires to rescue and restore us to right relationship. It's a God who knows we're broken and wants to heal. God, I pray that they would come to you by faith and say, I'm sorry, forgive me for abandoning you. Forgive me for rebelling against you. Forgive me for worshiping other stuff. God, I pray that you take my whole heart. I put my faith in you. I believe. I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe you rose again for me. And I believe you've made a future for me. And God, I want to submit to you. I want you. I want to become a Christ follower. You are the way. And I want to become a part of the way. I want to be a Jesus follower. You give your heart to him. He'll transform you. We want to thank you one more time for taking the time to listen to these messages that God's provided our fellowship. We believe he's doing something special among us and would love for you to be a part of it. We hope that you'll take the time to come and visit us in person someday soon. And we invite you to visit our website, covenantcommunitylj.com. If you have a prayer request or if there's a specific way we can minister to you and your family. Until then, God bless you.